Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Safra If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, we welcome you and we hope that you come back for future episodes. If you are a returning audience member or a listener, we welcome you back and we hope that tonight's episode is one that you find enlightening and informative. But before we welcome tonight's guest, I just want to make a few quick announcements. First and foremost, we have our Dane Talk Apparel Shop where we are selling some new merchandise for the year. We have some new gear for librarians, new gear for our school leaders who are in the trenches supporting teachers and students during the pandemic. And of course, we have our special Stay True to Teaching You gear for our teachers who are out there in the front lines virtually and in person making it happen in their school communities. And then for our teachers and educators who are looking for some professional development credits, uh, we currently have our Shape of the Teacher Identity 101 virtual program out now on Teachable, uh, which will provide you with some information regarding culturally responsive and anti-racist practices, classroom management, teacher identity information, your educators on a genius, among other modules. And it's just a great way to build up your professional development credits as you advance your license, which is important for us to do to stay in our districts, right? So if you are interested in learning more about that, book a call with us today at Identity Talk uh, through our Calendly at Calendly.com backslash Identity Talk for numeral four educators. And we hope to hear from you. So those are the announcements. Now let's get to the main event. And uh, tonight, I'm just so excited because I'm going to be talking with one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram as far as educators are concerned. Every time I get on Instagram, I I just get inspired by her lives, her quotes, just her insights. And she is somebody who admittedly is still trying to get comfortable getting in front of the camera, but she's combating the fears today. And I'm excited to have her on. She is an educator. She's down in the 305 Miami, and she's a visiting professor at Florida Air National University. And we're going to get into a conversation regarding teacher education, but within the context of cultural responsive pedagogy, but also with the infusion of hip hop education, which is one of her many specialties. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on Dr. Courtney E. Rose to the podcast. So we're going to welcome her right now. Hi. See, I put the, I put the E in there. I, I emphasize the E. Respect. <laughs> Thank you. Respect. I, 
I appreciate that. Yes. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here um, with you tonight. This podcast is definitely one of the top ones on my radar. So I'm very excited to be here. No, um, <laughs> and that means a lot coming from you. Now I appreciate that uh, sincerely. Uh, but let's get right in because there's so much to talk about. Yes. So first, first question I always love to ask my guest is to tell us a little bit about yourself and what ultimately okay. brought you into the field of education. Yeah, so I um, I spent most of my uh, education in South Florida. So I grew up in Broward County, very close to, to Miami, where I am now. Um, and I was not going to be an educator. <laughs> I was going to be a journalist. I wanted to start my first, I wanted to start like a, a magazine for uh, like specifically speaking to the experiences of Black teenagers, Black teenage girls, especially. And that was it. I was convinced. I went to college, uh, the University of Florida, Go Gators. And um, I was a magazine journalism major. But I found that my voice was not really being utilized in a way that I really connected with. Um, I felt like confined and limited and constrained a bit. And I just didn't, wasn't finding the joy and the passion that I thought I would find uh, in this field or even studying it. And so I joke and say I was a professional summer camp counselor at this time because I'd worked out as a summer camp counselor since I was like 14, 15. And I was back home and we take the kids on a sleepaway trip. And I was feeling kind of anxious because I had to go back to school and I wasn't excited to go back into another year of this journalism program. And I was talking to one of my bosses and he was like, why don't you do this? Like you come alive when you work with kids, you are so natural at it. He was a teacher himself and he was like, you are meant for this. And he wasn't the first person that told me that. Many of my family members had told me that I felt it <laughs> to a certain degree if I'm being honest with myself. Right. I come from a long line of educators and um, or people who have worked in schools but um, it clicked when he said that. For some reason, it clicked. And I changed my major the next week when I went back to school. And it's been, that's it. It's been the journey from there. <clears throat> wow, and that's awesome. So in your family, um, I know your mom is an educator, and she's also mm -hmm. a doctor. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure we point that out. So yes. it's definitely in the bloodline. Definitely yes, in the bloodline, for sure. Um, <laughs> So let's fast forward. So mm -hmm. you finally realize, okay, I want to be the educator. And then you then do your doctoral work at the mm -hmm. teacher's college at Columbia University. Now, yeah. I, and, I, and I have to say this because I feel like with the teacher's college at Columbia University, you talk about black educator brilliance. I mean, mm -hmm. from, of course, Dr. Chris Emden. You yeah. know, Dr. Yolanda Celia Ruiz, mm -hmm. you know, even um, my sis, uh, Shauna Brown, Teach for the Culture, went through Teachers College. So yeah. many great educators who are my favorite people to follow mm -hmm. went through it. So I want you to tell me, what is it about Teachers College at Columbia University that's so special, particularly for Black educators, in your opinion? Um, so for me... Columbia represented a lot. I have a lot of family connections there. But um, 
I think being there, there's a sense of people actually wanting to engage in the conversations that need to be had. Um, I think, you know, probably a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's in New York, which is a city where people are having these conversations all the time, walking down the street, on the subway, what have you, you're hearing this, it's brewing, it's just a part of the culture and the environment there. Um, but I think, and particularly in the time that I was there, the students were hungry for this kind of dialogue and we were really pushing the professors deeper into it. So people like Chris and people like Yolanda and people like you know Dr. Ernest Morell, who was on my dissertation committee and you know, right. others and Dr. Um, Michelle Knight Manuel, who was in my department, you know, they were there and we came in and we were ready to have these conversations and they supported and nurtured that. There's really a community of professors who are about this work, you know, and when you find them and they find us and we latch on to them, they nurtured that in us so beautifully and so powerfully that I don't. I don't know if it's a product of the city or a product of just like-minded people coming together in one space and, and holding on to each other and supporting each other, but the environment felt, I felt nurtured there in many pockets of that community that in a way I hadn't in many other institutions that I'd been a part of. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, you went through that process, became a doctor and, yeah. you know, as you know, and as the whole world knows, um, you know, past few weeks, we've had some recent uh, controversy regarding just uh, our first lady, uh, Dr. Joe Biden, and and how mm -hmm. there was an op-ed out there pretty much um, questioning her credentials as a doctor. So yeah. I think first and foremost, it's pretty well documented that there is sexism in academia. Yeah. Um, and women have been victimized and subjected to it for a long time. But then mm -hmm. we look at the intersectionality of it and you, you know, put black women in academia, you know, in that equation, that's another layer that you know yeah. we have to unpack. So I just want to know from you as a black woman in academia who went through the journey to professorship, right? Walk us through that and tell us what were some of the ups and downs that you've experienced <laughs> or maybe you're currently experiencing um, in that journey, because I think it's, it's something that's important for for people to know, especially uh, for our black women who are aspiring mm -hmm. to get a doctoral degree and be in academia and become maybe tenured professors one day. So any of my friends who are listening to this are already smiling and laughing because they know my relationship with uh, the academy is is. I don't want to say love hate, but we it's 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 tense at times, you know. But because all of the things that we talk about our you know younger black students and teachers in K twelve, all the things that they experience, it, none of that is different, you know. It's just more of the same when you're um, you know pursuing your doctorate specifically and especially when you're doing so in these institutions that are so deeply steeped in um, you know, for lack of a better word, capitalism and, 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 and white supremacy, when you look at the walls and it's just every professor, every pres past president, every past dean, every past provost is white. And you're walking through like, 
you know, where do I fit when you walk into your classrooms and you're one of a few or the only one? Um, when you have trouble getting your research approved or finding someone who supports your specific angle on your research or seeing it as particularly valuable, all those things, right? They all exist. And so when I graduated, I was like, do I wanna really go back for another round of this? Because there are tons of books and tons of articles talking about the ways in which black professors have a really hard time finding jobs or um, making it through the hiring processes at, at various universities and institutions that have trouble having their voices heard and valued on committees and in department meetings and things like that. So I was honestly asking myself, do I want to sign up for another round of this? Right. Um, and I, I found a path that worked for me. Um, I went in as an adjunct first. Uh, I talked about this a little bit on my last live, but I went in as an adjunct first and I was working at two institutions and I was just kind of feeling it out. Um, really got to prioritize the aspect of it that I love the most, which is the teaching. And so that I, I got to feel a little bit of it. I got to ask questions. I got to learn kind of what people prioritize in these spaces, what people value in this, this, these spaces and at this level of the game was definitely leaning heavy on my support system. You know, my mother who was a professor, my, you know, Yolanda, Chris, just leaning heavy on them, asking the questions about what I should expect and how I should move and the kinds of questions that I should be asking and the type of people I should be reaching out to. And then I, you know, got this position as a visiting professor at FIU where I am now. And I have to say that there are some really great things going on. And I'm feeling really inspired and motivated by the types of conversations that are being pushed and the types of uh, dialogue that my colleagues are willing to have and are pushing to have. I'm certainly motivated by the energy coming from my students. And that inspires me on a daily basis to keep bringing my game stronger and stronger every week and every semester. But we still face the same battles. You know, we're certain classes that we know are pushing and, and firmly situated in conversations of social justice and racial equity um, get scrubbed from, you know, requirements and right. from curriculum. So we're still fighting the same fight, uh, just in a different space. And so... You know, Nipsey said it best, the marathon continues and I'm still here fighting just in a different arena. So I do want to touch on the adjunct professor position for a second, because mm -hmm. I've had conversations with friends who are in academia, mm -hmm. whether they're classroom teachers who are just adjuncting part time after yeah. the long day with the students and how there's flexibility with adjuncting. But at the same time, we look at the politics within academia. You have the tenure professors and then those who went through the, I guess, the more traditional quote unquote track mm -hmm. with professorship. And then you have those who are just kind of coming in on a part time basis. Do you sense that there is a difference in the treatment between the adjunct professor 
and the more traditional professor, for lack of a better term? I mean, certainly there's a difference in because of the level of engagement you are encouraged to have and in some cases allowed to have. So, you know, you don't get invited to the department meetings and those kinds of things unless somebody invites you um, for whatever reason. Um, usually you don't get a vote on certain policies and practices and things that are going on in your department or in your college. You may not even be privy to them. Um, I certainly wasn't unless I asked somebody and um, the person who actually brought me in at FIU, she has always done a really fabulous job of keeping me in the loop and making sure that I know what's being spoken about and how it affects me. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, so I think like to that end, yes, uh, there is definitely a different treatment. You know, certainly we can talk about the pay, um, <laughs> which is which varies, right? right? Um, with some universities, I think compensating people quite well for the fact that you don't have to do those things, like go to meetings and be on committees and things like that. And others, is should they should be ashamed of what they're <laughs> they're offering professors because at the adjunct professors, because at the end of the day, you're mm -hmm. still doing planning, you're still coming in and implementing, you're still working with, you know, sometimes there was one semester adjuncting that I had just as many students that I, I have now. Um, and so, you know, it was 135 people across four classes. So, you know, it's a lot. And um, so certainly there are huge differences, but I think there's also freedoms. There's freedoms to engage with students as the priority of your work in a different way. There's opportunities to engage in other lines of work. So you can put a lot of effort in some of the other and time into some of your other projects. You can just make yourself available to your students in different ways. So there's pros and cons and you just have to figure out if it works for you financially and if you feel like you are engaged with the university in the way that you want to be. And are right. you able to do that? Right. And I want to stay on that for a second because mm -hmm. I know in recent weeks, um, if pe people who do follow me on Instagram, they know where my stances are in terms of what we need to do with teacher education, mm -hmm. how we need to change, how we need to focus on decolonizing as opposed to just diversifying. Because guess what? You can because, you know, you could diversify all you want. But you know mm -hmm. what? This is a way to perpetuate tokenism that happens in so many of our uh, teacher education programs. So I'm just wondering, in terms of just the rules of engagement, because, you know, you being a visiting professor, um, as, you know, many, you know, people are in these different institutions, whether it's PWIs or HBCUs, right? Mm -hmm. I guess it's a, I want to know, what are some specific actions we can take to decolonize the way that we do teacher education mm -hmm. in these programs, whether it's a residency, like a TFA, which I know you were um, mm -hmm. a part of early <laughs> on in your career, or yeah. a traditional teacher education program within an institution of higher learning. What are some ways we can do it, you know, within your capacity as a professor? But mm -hmm. let's say um, you may not be a professor. You're just a regular teacher. What, what can we do? So I think that there definitely needs to be more conversations between the higher ed and the K-12 space. That's number one. I don't think that there's enough communication and dialogue between the teachers who are on the ground in classrooms and the professoriate who is preparing the new group of teachers to come in. Um, certainly hiring practices need to be 
looked at as far as who are we recruiting to be professors and what do our hiring practices look like? Who's able to make it through that? Who is viewed as actual viable candidates once they get up there? And what are we basing that in? Because, you know, Gloria Ladson Billings writes about this two-tiered demographic imperative. We always talk about the fact that the teaching population, the K-12 teaching population, has remained predominantly white women, you know, from middle class backgrounds who only speak English. And there can be a sort of cultural mismatch between them and their students. Um, But the same thing is happening up in the professoriate and probably in greater, uh, with a greater disconnect, because then we have more people who are falling into middle upper class, um, the middle upper class sector of society and, and haven't even been in classrooms maybe since they graduated or since they taught 10, 20, 30 years ago. So they're becoming more and more distanced from the environments that they're trying to prepare teachers to go into. They don't really have that same connection to the realities that our students and teachers are facing on the ground in schools. And so I think we need to look at who we're hiring, who we're deeming um, experts in the field that needs to be broadened and widened, what we deem as valuable qualities to bring to a university. Some of that is so steeped in this very Eurocentric narrative of what good quality research looks like. Um, And then what are we putting on the books in terms of our courses and what are we requiring versus what we're putting as electives? I I do a lot of work work studying university-based programs. That's what my dissertation was about. And so just thinking about what gets put on the books and what students can pick and choose from sends huge messages about what we value in the educators that come out of those buildings and those programs. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, I have no question about why particularly um, Black pre-service teachers choose to look at some of these alternative programs, um, alternative certification programs, where they can see more representations of themselves in the staff and in the instructional um, team that's preparing their coursework or their, you know, activities, their training activities. Uh, it doesn't, it's not lost on me why they look elsewhere. <laughs> right. And it's a really complicated issue because in one instance, you have to make amendments to the syllabi, mm-hmm. the curriculum, and you're mm-hmm. also trying to get your deans and your professors to decenter whiteness Mm-hmm. you know, within their own mindset, yeah. right? Like, there's so much involved there. So let's say that we do make changes to the curriculum. I mean, as you know really well, because of NCLB and now ESA, mm-hmm. and we talk about teacher accountability, we're in positions, and I had to go through this as well, where we're taking tests that pretty much reinforce the status quo and, mm-hmm. and white supremacy, right? You know, look at who we're centering in these programs in terms of theorists, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know like I have to learn about Jean Piaget, Lev Vyskoski, Edward Skinner, and all these other people. But you know what? You're not feeding me Dr. Hazel Hillier. You're not feeding me Dr. Amos Wilson. Mm-hmm. You know You're not feeding me those people who pretty much have provided the gateway for some of this work that's taking place right now. 
And if we're talking about anti-racism, you know, we, we have to center those folks who have been decentered for so many years and have been doing this work and have been dedicating their lives to this work, right? So what will it take for us to change our um, teacher licensure test, like mm. the practice test, you know, and all the other tests that we have to take through ETS and then, you know, the Kaplan's and, yeah. and, and Raw Hills and all the other corporations that are capitalizing off of perpetuating these um, white supremacist ideologies in education? I mean, it has to be, I think data is something that gets a bad rap in sort of these things. But the number one thing that kind of, as I was expanding what I was doing in my own practice as a, as a teacher educator now, you know, I don't look at it as you either get this or this. We're going to look at it all because we're, we'll better, we'll be able to better critique some of the dominant voices and uh, perspectives that we've been force fed for so long. Once we layer in the other voices, the other perspectives, um, and the other experiences, right? So I do a lot of both, both and. You're gonna, we're still gonna look at some of the things that they tell you should be the valuable stuff that you walk away with, the Piagets and all that, but we're gonna also bring in the Chris Emdens or the Yolanda Celia Ruizes because I think we even, you know, pigeonhole ourselves into who are the top people we should be reading? You know, they skim off the top. Like these are the black voices that are worth reading. These are the black perspectives that are worth knowing. And we even get a limiting there. So um, I bring both of those in. And the what shows is how the students respond to the class, how the students, what they say on my course evaluations, what they say, you know, how much my class fills up every semester, right? Those are the things that speak to people. And then that's gonna trickle down into the shifts and the changes that we see with our uh, black and brown students in the classroom. And so I think that it has to start with this mentality that if we want to see this show up in other places, we have to fight for it now, even if we don't know how it's gonna end up. So that's what I always tell people, like I'm gonna do this work the way that I know it should be done now. And then hopefully the change comes because I'm building this you know, critical mass of people who's gonna go out there into classrooms across the country or maybe even just across my state, I don't know. I don't teach only students who are in Florida, but across the country and make waves with their students. And eventually you're not going to be reaping benefits from only focusing on these things because the people are going to be asking and looking for more. And so I think, you know, in order to make, you know, and see the changes that we want, we have to just do it. We can't wait for them to say, we're gonna make, this the official thing that you need to know. When you come in my class, you need to know these things, right? When you come in my class, we're going to prioritize those things and those voices and those perspectives because they're important. And because if you don't know them, how can you teach black students who represent those voices or who have those voices and experiences in their daily lives? And so, um, I think the shift and the change is not something we can wait for, but we just have to do it and watch the waves, you know? No, um, absolutely. And I believe that the shift is already happening 100%. as a result of social media. 
100. I mean, all the dope people who are just doing this work, you know, within their different capacities. I mean, mm-hmm. just look at just look at the different conferences that are being birthed as a result of what we're talking about right now. And it's just beautiful to see because there was a time where you couldn't see this mm-hmm. on social media. There was even a time very recently where you had black folks complain about the fact that, you know, let's say white conferences were not, you know, inviting, you know, black teachers and black educators and professors, you know, into those spaces. Yes. But they're talking about subject matter where a lot of these folks are expertise, you yep. know, within that, right? But but now it's like, why do we have to ingratiate ourselves and and wait for the invitation to happen we can create the invitation yeah and, and you know unfortunate, and although right like this time that we're in has been so ch- difficult it has opened up spaces for people to you know get together and build these conferences and workshops and and seminars and communicate and collaborate with people from across the country in ways like i haven't seen maybe ever <laughs> you know there right. are and teachers are driving it. That's what's so powerful, right? It's just so powerful. You can have professors and teachers and students coming together so authentically and powerfully to have the conversations that they're not having in their classrooms and in their, you know, teacher ed programs or their graduate programs. And it's it's really powerful. It's really powerful. And I think that universities really need to pay attention to that and really need to start listening and watching what's going on. Because um, like you said, the movement is happening <laughs> and you either gonna get on or, or get left behind. No, and, and that's something that just like school districts, you know, follow trends, which then translates to dollars, mm-hmm. universities, PWIs, they mm-hmm. do the same exact thing. Yeah. You know, whenever they try to bring a speaker in, whether it's a, a Dr. Bettina Love, whether it's a, a Dr. Chris Emden, you know, a Dr. Goldie Muhammad, who, you know, I had, you know, the honor of having on the on this show to to talk about what she's doing. Yeah. I mean, when you have people who are at the forefront doing this work, right? It makes it easier for those access points to open up for other people to do this work. Yeah, because now, because now they're like at the forefront. But just going back to what you were saying about skimming, like skimming the surface mm-hmm. of books, right? See the book I have in my hand, right? Mm-hmm. Now this this is probably a whole different episode of the podcast. Yeah, there's not enough time to unpack this, but <laughs> what I try to tell people to do is okay. There is some good information in this book. Mm-hmm. It's a great introductory point for folks who are just oblivious to what's going on in terms of racism, especially right. if you're a white person, right? Mm-hmm. But here's a part that we have to push people to do. All right, if you're going to read this book, check this out. Go to the notes section. Go to the notes section, right? Like, look at all these articles in here that you can open up. And I know that for you, you have a whole you have a whole archive of articles. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about you. You always hit us with the articles, the op-eds, the case studies. 
it's in these books as well, but how many of us are actually looking at the notes section to mm-hmm. see the different works that are referenced? I mean, as I'm looking at this, I see, obviously I see, you know, Dr. Kendi. I see France Fanon, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, like, how many people know about France Fanon? <laughs> yeah. But it's being referenced. Yeah. By a white woman. Yeah, and you know, that's a... Right? that. What you're doing is something that's like, and talking about a lot of what I talk about is accessibility, like what kinds of tips and tricks and and just understandings are passed on and who gets access to that information, which is why a good part of my platform is like, this is what I do to like make sure I'm up on game. So I wanna make sure that you, and I learned this from the educational opportunities that I was privileged to have, <laughs> like, you know, just, the, what I was privileged to gain. And so going into the notes, going into the references, going into the bibliography, whatever you want to call it, that is how you get some of the gems. And that's how you get some of those voices that don't get, like, don't rise to the top so often because they get, you know, weighed down in the, or buried in the reference list, in the notes. And it's how you can begin to diversify and decolonize, you know, just transform your syllabi, just transform it. Because the other thing is we're all using the same text. We're kind of, you know, the message gets stale when that happens. And so go into the notes, who, who's inspiring your favorite scholar? You know, who's your favorite scholar's favorite scholar? <laughs> like, you know, get in there and, and, read it all. And that's just, you know, some of it is, you know, not as accessible as I'd like, which is why I said the Google, you know, set those Google um, alerts because they have a, for some reason, a lot of them come back as, you know, accessible PDFs. But that is such a pro tip, like get in the bibliography, in the references and dig in. Because the gems are there, the power is there, the keys are there. Right. And I think that's one of the issues that I have. And that's what perpetuates this appropriation that takes place mm-hmm. over social media. Because people say, you know what? Like, I read the book. Now I'm ready to talk about it. But it's like, no, you didn't. You read the book, right? The finished product. But guess what? Did you go through the skeleton of this book? Mm-hmm. See what I mean? Like, did you go through the skeleton of this book? Because, um, and just to give you another example, like Dr. Patina Love, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we want to do more than survive. If you know Dr. Patina Love, you will know that just through reading the book, there's Bell Hooks influences. Yeah. There's Paulo Freire influences. And if you don't know who those people are, you got to read up on them. Yeah. Get up on your game. Like, you can't just read Dr. Love's book and not read Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire. Absolutely. Right. Like, you have to follow that chain of scholarship. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's facts. I mean, it's really true. And also, you won't have the depth that you need to then translate it and transmit it to someone else. You just won't. You'll just, you might as well just tell your students to just read the book and that's it because you don't have the depth that's necessary to really get in there. And also a lot of that stuff, it it puts you through the necessary self-work that you need. 
when you read about Hux or uh, Paulo Freire or, you know, Franz Fanon, it wakes stuff up in you that you didn't even know was sleep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so Bettina's work is going to do that too, but you need the work that woke Bettina up to wake, you know, to wake all the way up. And so that's, you're not done. And I think Bettina Love and, and, and they would all say the same thing. Like, don't stop here. <laughs> you know, go keep going to the depth. No. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's really the whole point, because I'm really much into intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about giving people their flowers. Yeah. I try to do it before they're gone. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people who are who have pioneered this work, they're not here to see the benefits of their labor and the movements that have taken place as a result of that, right? Yeah. Like like James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Like I tell people all the time, one of my favorite pieces from D- James Baldwin is a talk to teachers. We talk <laughs> about activism. Yeah. We talk about just using your teacher voice, building agency. That piece which is about maybe five pages long mm-hmm. and it's a powerful piece that should be in every teacher education program. Mm-hmm. When we talk about CRP and I know that you talk about James Baldwin in your courses with your yeah, students. We just did it. We did it for right. two weeks. We did a two week deep dive. And <laughs> like, it was there. It's in every class, you know, because it has to be, that's where we start. You cannot, it's like, do not pass go, do not collect $200 until you get in there and dissect this piece and really recognize, it sets the stage for the whole semester. And then I always tell them, don't leave anything behind. We're not just gonna read Baldwin and leave him here in weeks two and three. He's coming with us for the whole ride. Everything right. you, you can't just, oh, that was, that, was, that was great. I loved it and then move on. So every week I'm asking them, how does this connect back to what we talked about in Baldwin? What would Baldwin say about this, do you think? When you put this through the lens of a talk to teachers, what comes up for you? What's missing? What's not here? What should be here? And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it just provides context to what's happening. Mm-hmm. It provides context to what happened at the nation's capital a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. It provides context to what's been happening you know, in our education system, just this idea of us just being brave and just speaking up for what's right. Like, and that was over, was it almost 50 years ago when he, when he put that out there, Mm -hmm. we're in 2021. Yeah. We're still talking about it right now. (laughs) Yep. And that's the one thing I have to try to, to curb my students being like, well, that was 1963. So much is different now. And I say, well, what's different? And I always say, okay, well, what's different? And then we have that conversation and then it's a it's a whole nother thing. You know, it's like, mm. <laughs> it might look different. It might sound a little different, but when we peel back the layers, what's different? Um, it might be wearing a different costume, have a different voice, have a different face, but what's different? And they can't really, we don't really get there all the way. So Right. And I think it's important for people to realize that Jim Crow does exist in education, even mm. now. It just has different faces. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. it might wear glasses. Sometimes it might wear a wig. You know what I mean? Sometimes it might wear a different outfit. But guess what? It's still Jim Crow. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's still happening. 
mm-hmm. but we have to open our eyes and our radars to even recognize that. And that's mm-hmm. where the education comes in. But um, I, I do want to, yeah, I do want to shift to just the gaps because with teacher education, we know there are gaps that exist within it. So mm-hmm. just in your opinion, what do you believe are some of the gaps that still exist in the way that we orient teachers into the different classrooms they end up in? So I think one of the gaps is is we're still thinking of things as kind of segmented, right? Rather than all one, everything informing the other. So I think it's like you get your content here, you get your theory here and all of that. You get your you know, method, like your practice over here. And that's what happens when stu- when these teachers go into the classroom. They're not able to connect the theories to their content and then how that manifests into their practice because they never had a class or an experience that brought it all together. Hold up. A practicum's not enough? <laughs> I thought that's what the practicum was for, right? <laughs> but that's what you know, and that's even what the feedback is when they get into their practicum, right? Because the practicum has to be very deeply rooted in the mission, and sometimes it's not. And so a lot of times teachers are just, when they get into their practicum, they just get so focused on, well, what's my, um, I don't know what you all call it, but what's my... Uh, mentor teacher doing, you know, and they just learn to kind of follow what that person does. And so it's just that theory practice gap is the one that is continuing to plague the teacher education um, uh, field right now and continuing to reveal itself once we send teachers out into classrooms. They getting all this great theory and they're like, yes, I love it. They feel inspired and motivated. And then they get in the classroom and they're like, I don't know how to put this into practice at all. And what's missing to me, what makes that connection more difficult for them to make is we don't spend enough time on the self-work. We don't. Mm. We don't spend enough time on the self-work. There's not enough reflection. There's not enough discussion about how did I experience these things? How do I think about these things? How do these things manifest in the ways that I engage with people in my everyday social life? Right? How do these things manifest in how I talk about people, how I talk about experiences? Because that is all showing up in your practice. And so if we don't do the self-work, if we don't understand the messages that we've internalized about ourselves, about education, about the world around us, about other people, about race, about gender, about any of it, then the theory is just going to be something cool that I read. And when I get into my practice, I'm just going to lean on what I saw when I was in, you know, if I'm a fifth grade teacher, I'm just going to lean on what I saw from my fifth grade teacher. Because to me, that's going to be the only thing I have to hold on to. Wow. So I spend so much time with my students to the point where they get aggravated with me <laughs> at times saying, but yes, but what does that mean to you? Like, what does that mean for you? Nice. What experience did you have as a K through 12 student that speaks to that? Did you? And then if you didn't have one, why? What about your identity shielded you from that? 
right? Or kept you from having to see that until I forced you to look at it. Because that is what you're gonna take with you into the classroom. You know, that is what you're gonna put back into your students, white or black. <laughs> That's what you're gonna give to them. Wow, wow, Dr. Rose. And, and this is why I started my consulting firm. This is why it's called <laughs> Identity Talk Consulting for really? that very reason. And I don't know if you can see that tagline, mm-hmm. staying true to teaching you. Like, 100%. see what I mean? And, and this is why we got the gear. This is why it's all about <laughs> this right here. Yes. We, we have to get our teachers to recognize that because so many times in our practicums, we have, we find ourselves just trying to take that template that the mentor mm-hmm. teacher gives us without realizing that teaching is an art. Mm-hmm. That template you have is a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to craft that portrait into the image that you want it to be. Mm. Right. And and a lot of us don't recognize that. And and I want to find out from you. Do you believe that is the way that our school districts are structured? Because I know for me, I've I've taught in a charter school, I've taught in the public school like a public district school, because there are some charter schools that are public, so I'll make sure I make that distinction. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I was at the charter school, I had more autonomy in terms of my pedagogy, the curriculum. I was creating my own scope of sequences in the summertime because all they gave me was Common Core standards. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know what? Go ahead, Kwame. You go ahead, rock with it. You go ahead, create your path. All, all we care about is just the benchmarks and those test scores at the end of the day, right? Yeah. But then I go to Boston and, you know, first time in the public school district, they already give me a scope of sequence for the entire year. And I'm like, hold up. You already did the work that I've been doing all this time. Mm-hmm. And it felt unnatural for me because I need the autonomy to to do my art. Yes. Like, oh, yes. The shackles got to come off of me so I could be me. I got to do me. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, I worked in a public charter, like a public district charter school. I worked at a public school and I worked at a private school. Um, and the level of like you could just I've seen all the levels right of teachers who just have literal full reign over every single thing that happens in their rooms um, to. I have to just get every single aspect of my lesson plan approved, every detail, every word in the public school and have constant invasions of my space and climate. I can't even build one because somebody's always just popping in and telling me what I could be, what I should be doing without even really knowing the relationships that I'm trying to cultivate with the kids. And there's no sense of, you know, literally being handed lesson plans that somebody I don't even know created, you know? And so absolutely, I think that. Um, And I think that it's important to, uh, something that you said made me think of something and then I went through my journey and kind of lost it. But I think it's important to remember that, Oh, I'm so mad at myself because I went, you know, my journey through teaching was a lot. And so when I go through it, sometimes it takes me to different places emotionally and and I got very lost in it. But I think um, 
it's absolutely designed to make sure that teachers themselves feel like they don't have a room for their voice. And when I don't have a room for my voice, how can I be empowered to help you find room for yours? There it is. I'm finding it. <laughs> right. And I, tell, I tell teachers all the time when you justify doing things that limit your students' ability to authentically express themselves, a lot of times that comes from years of justifying the, the limiting and diminishing of your own voice in that mm. same system, right? And so if I, can, if I have been constantly taught to fall in line and just do what's, what's on the paper and I've found ways to justify that, that when I'm asked to do that to the students in my room, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna be more readily available to do that, or readily able to do that, right? It's the yeah. hurt people, hurt people, oppressed people, oppressed people, right? And so I tell teachers all the time when you sit here and you find ways to say, well, this is just how it is, then you cannot turn around when you feel like administration or district or state officials are listening to you and say, come on, you should be listening to Yash, we need to be have our voices heard. That's just, and get mad when they say, that's just the way it is. That's how it's structured, right? That's what it, we do. And so when you open spaces and fight for your students to be their full selves, to be their authentic selves, to bring in more voices and perspectives, you open up room for you to be more authentic, for you to be your full self, for you to bring everything that you've been pushing down to fit in line and and fall into the space where you're supposed to be. And so um, <laughs> I laugh because so many of my college students, I don't have like formal essays or things like that. I want them to just freely speak. And I always get so many emails like, Dr. Rose, I don't, well, what exactly am I, like, what's the structure? I don't care, make me a podcast, make me a video, make me some kind of artistic representation, write me a song, something that tells your story in your voice, because this class is about figuring out who you are in the context of your work. Come on. Right? So many times as teachers, we're taught to figure out how to put ourselves, you know, make ourselves fit into something that's already there. I'm saying figure out who you are first and then build your practice around that. Yes. Because that's where the magic is going to be. And when I tell you by the time some of them get through the whole like I just feel safer in a in a traditional paper. Why? Why do you feel safer there? Let's unpack that. Right? <sighs> Why do you feel safer there? You don't talk like this when you're with your friends. I want that person. I oh. want that person because that person is going to be able to pull that out of a kid. That person who's open is going to be able to open up a kid. Mm. So we don't, you know, I'm trying to be, and then they ask me, well, I'm going to have to go into a school that wants me to shrink back down. And I was, and we, we talk about how we can, navigate that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm in the business of opening people up. Um, and, and I've always been that. So that's what I do. <laughs> wow. Um, where, first off, where's the collection plate? My <laughs> um, where, where do I start? Well, well, listen, here's what's crazy about 
education. In so many of our circles, we talk about this idea of agency. How many times do you hear the word agency in our programs, right? In EduSpeak. And yet, we tell our students, we're being told that we need to teach our students how to take ownership and responsibility for their learning, thus Mm -hmm. building agency in their learning, right? Mm -hmm. How can we as educators build agency in our students' learning when we're not afforded the opportunities to build our own agency as educators, right? That's the part that that always gets me. (laughs) Like, Like, you're telling me that I need to teach them how to build agency, but guess what? Ain't nobody teach me how to do it for myself because guess what? My voice has been muted. Um, it's been restricted. The rigidity mm-hmm. of the curriculum model that I'm supposed to follow mm-hmm. has suppressed my innovation and creativity to be the best practitioner I can be. Yeah. But I'm supposed to teach my kids about agency. And mm-hmm. then this also ties back into activism. How can I be an activist for my students and for my colleagues and for my school community when I don't know how to build agency within myself, when I lack the self-efficacy, that black joy within myself. (laughs) You know, one, one message that I always disrupt that I hear my students say so much is I want that. I want to give my students a voice. I want to give my students voice and I always tell them your students already have one. Right. So what if what if your focus was not on giving your students a voice, but empowering them to use the one they already have? And why do you focus so much on giving voice? It's because you feel like someone gave you yours. Right. We're so taught to look up for something. What should I think? What should I feel about this? How should I you know, act in this scenario? We're so used to somebody telling us how to be, how to speak, what to think, that we think Mm. as educators, that's our job to do for the next generation, for the next kids in our room, right? Or we're supposed to show them how to be. We're supposed to give them the the voice. No, they have have it already. Your job is not to give your kids their voice, it's to pull it out, right? And so I always stop that that state phrase is not allowed in my class. <laughs> um, and as soon as I see it, I just ask, well, what would it look like if your job wasn't to give a voice, but to help students use it more authentically? What would mm-hmm. that require of you as an educator? What would that change about how you look at your role in your school, in your community? What would that require of you to do for yourself in order to do that for someone else? And why, you know, and a lot of them say like, oh, this teacher did that for me, you know, and I'm saying, well, what does that look like? What would you, you know, you know, do you feel like you feel comfortable being your authentic self? And what would that look like? <laughs> you know, um, because I'm me all the time. <laughs> like you get me all the time. So, you know, and the students laugh because um, I talk to them like how I talk to my friends on the phone, how I talk to my family. Like there is no two. There's no two. There's just me. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, what do I do? I just am. <laughs> That's what I do. Wow. 
I just am. Um, so it's hard for me to, to put that into words or to tell people what I do, but I just am. I just go in and I just, some days I plan a lesson and we end up 10 miles away from what I planned because that's where the students took me and I'm yeah. going to take me. <laughs> and you know what's crazy? Those end up being the best lessons. The best. More times than not. The best. It's just organic. And we always find our way back, right? We always find our way back. But I'm like, we have we must have needed to go there because we went there so, you know, seamlessly. And so um, you know, I'm not an over planner. I do prepare, but I'm not an over planner. Um, and some people find that frustrating, but especially dealing with adults, you know, teaching adults. Um, you know, we have to, I have to leave room for them in my in my teaching. So <clears throat> wow. Um wow. I, I don't know how you follow up with that. It's like you're just dropping 16 upon 16 upon 16s. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> wow. But we have to give our teacher candidates voice because they should not be coming out the programs asking the questions, right? And what yeah. you mentioned right there is the antithesis of Frarian ideology, right? Because if anybody has read the pedagogy of the oppressed, mm -hmm. this is exactly what Paulo Freire talks about. And he, he uses the term banking, where it's yeah. like, okay, I'm going to just feed you all this knowledge because guess what? I know everything. Y'all don't. So y'all going to listen to me while I give you this knowledge. I'm just going to give it to you. As opposed to this reciprocal relationship where, okay, I'm going to learn from you. You're going to learn from me. We're not gonna be we're not gonna fall victim to this rigidity of, of the curriculum and the lesson plan and the objectives that are posted nicely on the board for the evaluators to come to check me out. Like we're gonna do what we need to do. And we if we can get more of our teachers to do more of that work, they're gonna be more confident in what they do, and then that's how they're gonna build that self-efficacy, and then in turn our students will build self-efficacy and realize who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny part is that the students often connect because it's not a lack of covering the content. It's just the way you cover it that's different, mm -hmm. right? It's a starting with the student and then figuring out where the content fits them versus starting that with the content and figuring out how students can insert them into that right themselves into that. So it's just start where you start is different. And when you start with me and then lead into my connections with the content, it's so much stronger than if you start with the content and try to have me buy into it. Like I, my number one pet peeve is the quote unquote culturally relevant hook that like is supposed to like bring kids into the lesson. Come on. And then once you get them in there, you rip that hook out and it's just the same old crap that we've been doing. It, oof. It's like Don't the bait, it's like bait. Don't let me see it, you know what I'm saying? So it's just, that's my number one pet peeve. We're not hooking kids, right? We are building lessons around them and with them and through them. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like. If you don't start with them, 
then you're never, you're not really going to end with them either. <laughs> you know, you're not right. really going to end with them either. And so I just find that the connection is so much stronger. My students, my adult students, their connection with the material is so much stronger because the material is them. We're just using these other people to to give us some things to hold on to, some things for us to think about, some things to process, some language that we maybe didn't have before that helps us to make sense of the things that we've always experienced. But it's them. You know, I teach a class called Cultural and Social Foundations. We are cultural and social beings in this world. So we're going to be talking about the human experiences that we go through on a daily basis. Every single thing that we cover in my class is aligned with the aspect of our identity. I'm not gonna talk about it disconnected from you, <laughs> you know? I can't. And so for me to just sit up there and lecture and spit some jargon at you and all that is disingenuous. It's misaligned to the name of the course. So mm -hmm. we have to talk, we have to get in there and get messy and I tell them, you know, you're going to be uncomfortable. I might be uncomfortable at times. It was very difficult to make me feel uncomfortable having these conversations, but okay. But, um, you know, we're going to get in there. It's going to get messy. And that's one thing as educators, we can't be scared to get a little messy sometimes <clears throat> because right. this work is intense. We're like, as we talk about art, artists come out covered in their medium. They come out covered in paint, covered in clay, covered in in it because they are so deep in it, you know? And I guess that's how I feel <laughs> about the way I approach it too. Yeah, man, whoo, wow. I can't <laughs> wait to listen back to this episode for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just so many gems. This is why I had to bring you, this is why I'm right here. But, um, but I, I just, you just said so many things. And I think when you mentioned cultural and social foundations, I like to call it cultural literacy, right? Yeah. Like we talk about hooks. Hooks are inauthentic, mm -hmm. right? They don't really speak to who the person is. Mm -hmm. They don't draw from the inventory of that learner. But when you talk about foundations, we're talking about, all right, I need to make the investment in learning about my learners and taking that and using it as a vehicle to drive my pedagogy, to drive my instruction, and to inform my lesson planning. Mm -hmm. And when I need to make an audible in the middle of the lesson, <laughs> I can draw from that same source to do that. 100%. But... This is why I tell people, and I mentioned this in the clubhouse room, education is the one profession where the common sense solutions are uncommon. <laughs> Woo! I, I, mean, <laughs> I feel like that's a that's like a post I've made before, but I that is really true about about our profession. Like Absolutely. what should be like what's right in front of us, that solution, we always never take it. If anything, we we, re we repurpose different content. We repurpose different ideologies and theories and slap mm -hmm. a different name on it, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's all we do. We're not reinventing anything. It's just repurposing that's happened over the course yeah. of years. Yep. But 
but I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, so we're winding down. So I do want to get into our lightning round okay. and give you a few quick hitters. Okay. Uh, so that people can get to know a little bit more about you. All and right. you're doing, you're doing a lot of work right now. Mm-hmm. And you've been someone who has been very transparent about having more of a balance between the work you're doing with the students, but also just kind of your personal life and make sure that you're okay at home. Right. Yeah. So I want to know from you, what's your favorite self-care activity that you're doing right now to keep yourself sane? All right. It's going to sound real weird, but I'm watching all of the old seasons of America's Next Top Model right now um, because it's comic relief. And I shouldn't say that because this is people's lives, whatever, but it's so funny to watch. And it's also artistic. Like I love watching photo shoots and things like that. So that's one thing I'm doing. But what I always do, no matter what, is I'm a journaler. I actually just bought a new one that I don't need, but I have like 85,000 journals in my house. So I'm always journaling. That's my number one. That's my go-to all the time. But right now, it's American Next Time Model. <laughs> and, and listen, shout out to Tyra Banks, because I remember those seasons. She was hilarious. It's, it's a lot. It's a whole lot, but it's keeping me laughing and smiling. So I'm with it right now. <laughs> nah, but it, it's a, it was a it's a good show. It had its moments. Shout out to Tyra. Um, and and I know, <laughs> and I know you are a hip hop head, and you do infuse mm-hmm. you know, that hip hop education, you know, into your practices. So I want to know from you, who is Dr. Rose's? Mount Rushmore of MC. Okay, so okay, I guess Kendrick and Jay Z would definitely be on there. Um, I don't. Oh, this is so hard. I saw this question and I'm I cringe. Um, I went through a J Cole phase, so I'm gonna put him on there. And I guess there's four heads on Mount Rushmore, right? I yes, literally four. I don't know who I would put on the fourth. I'm gonna keep it a buck. I don't even know. Um, let me, let me, you want me to help you out? Yeah, you can let's, put my fourth. Let's, let's put a sister in there. Let's put a sister in there. Oh, okay, well, Lauren always goes on my, on. my list. I'll, I'll wait for that. Lauren's always on my list, and I apologize to her because she usually comes to my head first. But um, yeah, Lauren's always on my list. So. <laughs> yeah, I was like, because I know you like, hold up, you ain't mentioned El Boogie yet. <laughs> and El Boogie was I'm about to go hang out with my girl Amber tomorrow and we used to cruise to El Boogie like nobody's business just windows down blasting it just two bad teenagers just blasting music <laughs> and <laughs> like that, that that whole miseducation album yes just a masterpiece just a masterpiece <laughs> still still holds to this day to this day um all right to this day, uh, one book that every educator should read. I know that's a tough question because there's so many books, but what's one that comes to your mind immediately that every educator should have in their library? Connected, but all about love by Bell Hooks. All about love by Bell Hooks because I think what we need mm-hmm. is love. It sounds corny, but we need some infusion of love right now. So into the field, and that's where I'm going. All right, cool. I'm going to have to add that because I have teaching to transgress. I still yeah. haven't read that yet. That's that's 
I um Q, so I need to make sure to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last question: If you were to invite three influential figures to dinner, dead or alive, <laughs> who would those three people be? Um, I would definitely invite um Malcolm and Martin. Um, just because I think the, I don't, I think that it would be interesting for me to hear their perspectives on how their approaches were, were pit against each other or, you know, put so against each other. I would love to hear that straight from them. And Maya Angelou. Mm. For sure. No, that's still the three powerful people. And that's going to be a very incredible conversation i yeah. can just see it. but yeah dr rose thank you so much for being on the podcast um and whether you realize it or not this is a long time come i just said this is the right time to bring you in so i'm just glad that we finally made this happen um and and one more th- yeah one more thing how can people follow you on social media so they can get more of these gems that you were dropping today? <laughs> yeah, so I'm on just under my name at Dr. Courtney Rose on Instagram. Um, and you can find my consulting page at ivyroseconsulting.com where you can inquire about services. I provide whole group and or group and individual sessions on culturally relevant pedagogy, reflective teaching, and creating um, student-driven classrooms. So that's what it you is. <laughs> it is. So uh, Dr. Rose, thank you so much and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having me. This was great. Enjoy your day as well. All right. Thank you so much. Wow, people. You all just witnessed just one of the most incredible conversations we've had in the history of A Day Talk for Educators Live. You're not going to get this kind of content anywhere else. You're just not. You're not going to get this in a PD. You're probably not going to get it within your teacher education program if you are currently in one. Like, this is sacred knowledge right here. So this is one where you're going to have to probably tune in once, twice, three times, watch it over and over again, or listen to it to really process this content that's been dropped. But I digress again. So we're finished up another episode of our Day Talk Educators Live. And as always, I wish you all a good morning, good night, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.com identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.